Amen. Thank you, ladies. Great song, great thought. You know, all believers will go to heaven. But Jesus is not going to say, well done to all believers. My heart's desire, just like the heart's desire of most of you today, I want to live in a way for him to be able to say that to me. Amen? Go and get in your Bible to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. John chapter 2. I have a sinus issue going on, and so uh, I've asked the Lord not to let me cough through this, but if I go into a sinus cough, please just pray for me. Uh, If I keel over, uh, Joe or Josh will finish up, and they'll just grab me by the feet, drag me back there like this, and uh, it'll be all right. I know where I'm going. A few weeks ago, we started a lengthy Sunday morning series on uh, from three great books in the Bible, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and John, the Gospel of John, that is. Everything in the Bible, of course, is inspired by God. It means he moved by his spirit on holy men to control the words that they wrote. And then, through the centuries, God controlled providentially what went on so that you and I have the words of God today in our hands. And though most of the Bible... Um, <laughs> is applicable to us in today in America, living under grace. You know, not everything in the Bible is as applicable to us as other. It's all important. God put it in there. But some is more important. Some is more clear. Some is more applicable. And those are kind of like mountain peaks in the Bible. And we are going through those. And Lord willing, we'll spend quite some time on Sunday mornings uh, doing that. Last Sunday morning, we talked about Jesus being the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. We talked about the great announcement of John the Baptist there preaching in the wilderness when he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. It was an announcement that shook the world of that day, and it shakes the world of our day. Yet still, we talked about how everyone needs to have their sins taken away, and that Jesus is the propitiation. He is the appeasement, not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And then we talked about how if people end up missing Jesus, they miss the love of God. God didn't intend you and I to find his love in our culture. He did not intend you and I to find his love in the events of our life. There's a lot of bad things that happen and a lot of bad people. But God did funnel all of his life to you and I through the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we miss Christ, we miss the love of God expressed to us. And we closed encouraging one another to be witnesses for Jesus as the Lamb of God, just like John the Baptist was in his day. This morning, we return to the Gospel of John to read one of the earliest accounts from the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, We really are only giving one story when he was 12, and we're not given any news or information about his childhood, his teen years, his young adult years. He began his ministry when he was about 30. We do know that he was a carpenter. We do know that he was around and faithful to his family. We do know that he had friends, uh, but we don't know much else. And so he really comes on the public scene last week with the announcement of John the Baptist. Um, And in this early event, we're going to see something that is some good advice. 
It's not new news to anyone here that large segments of what is called Christianity highly exalts Mary, the mother of Jesus. Even though Jesus did not begin to exist in the womb of Mary, like you and I began to exist in the womb of our mothers. Some even pray to her. Even though we're clearly told by the Holy Spirit through Paul that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Some consider her to be the queen of heaven. And they exalt her above everything and everyone other than Jesus himself when really there is only a king in heaven. There is no queen. And Mary was a sinner who needed to be saved just like all the rest of us. And though Mary was not what many have imagined her to be, she was most probably the most faithful godly woman from the tribe of Judah in the lineage of David when the fullness of time came for Messiah to come to earth. And though Mary disappears from the pages of God's word after Acts chapter 1 to never be mentioned in any of the letters to churches or instruction to church leaders, she was a faithful follower of her only begotten son, Jesus. In fact, she was so dedicated to him that her and just a handful of others were at the foot of Christ's cross, risking death to identify with him. Now, early in the ministry of Jesus, Mary and the half-brothers of Jesus traveled around with he and his disciples. See, after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph had four sons and at least two daughters. And the Gospels don't only record the public messages of Jesus and things that he did in public when he was at the Jewish temple. They also record his personal interactions at times. In this case, a personal interaction at a wedding and a reception. Marriage has always been a big deal to our Creator. God Himself started the institution of marriage in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And not surprisingly, the Jews also made a big deal about marriage and a reception, some celebration of a man and a woman, let me say in 2024, a biological man and a biological woman committing themselves together in a covenant before God. Have you ever gotten any bad advice that you took? Ever hear anyone say, just ignore your problems, they'll go away? That's bad advice. Ever hear anyone say, never listen to what anyone says about you? That's bad advice. Ever hear anyone say, when life gives you lemons, don't make lemonade, throw them at people? That's bad advice. Ever get any good advice you ignored? Ever hear anybody say, do what's right, not what's easy, and then you take the easy road? Ever hear anyone say, you can't always get you what you want, and then you put it on your credit card anyway? Ever hear anyone say, learn something new every day, and then they refuse to read, refuse to get wise counsel, and they only watch sitcoms on TV? And we've all followed bad advice, we've all gotten good advice, we've ignored We've ignored it at times, and it never worked out good for any of us. Did you know that Mary, the mother of Jesus, gave people and us some good advice? 
Would you take her good advice this morning? If you're able to stand, if you would stand, please, in honor of God's word. The title of my thought this morning is, Do Whatever Jesus Says. Do whatever Jesus says. Everybody gives me advice on how to help my voice. Everybody's got a formula. They've got a recipe. You know, I've tried a lot of different things. Can I just say this? I've never found anything better than Mountain Dew to help your voice. And it does not taste bad like glycerin or any of these other kind of gobbledygook things everybody wants me to drink. Listen, if my voice is going to be bad, I'm going to enjoy it. Amen? Do whatever Jesus says. John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. When they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and he saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but now hast thou kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. Thank you, you might be seated. Last week, we talked about the day when John the Baptist made that great announcement, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. The first day after John said that, John reannounces Jesus to two of John's disciples, and that's in verse 35 of chapter 1. And the next day after, John stood and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. A disciple is a learner. Uh, John the Baptist had disciples just like Jesus had disciples. And these two disciples of John the Baptist, one of which was Andrew, uh, another one remains unnamed. When John reannounced that Jesus was the Lamb of God, they began to follow Jesus instead of following John. Now, if we studied this story, we would learn that the first thing Andrew did was he went and he got his, his, his brother Peter. Say, so why would he do that? Because when anyone is excited about their faith, whenever they're excited about something spiritual they found and learned, when they're excited about something that has helped them, they can't help but tell somebody they care about. And so Andrew went, he got his brother uh, Peter and brought him to Jesus. And the second day then was the day after he reannounced that and Andrew came and Peter, notice in verse 43, says in the day following, 
So this is the second day after John made the initial announcements. The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee, and he findeth Philip, and saith unto him, follow me. If you're ever asked a trivia question, what did Jesus say more than anything? That's the answer. Follow me. Verse 44, now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, we found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Uh, you say, why did, why, why, did he, why, why did Philip go and tell his friend Nathanael? Because when anybody is excited about something of God, when they recognize something of God has helped their life, they can't help but tell people they care about. Listen, when you have what Jesus wants to give, you want other people to know about it. I feel bad for any of you here who don't have something worth talking about. What you have that you call faith in Jesus, what you have that you call a relationship with God is not anything that moves you to tell anyone. I feel bad for you. Because when something burns in your heart and is exciting that God is doing in your life, you can't help but speak the things that you have seen and heard. And so now we basically, as far as we know, Jesus has four disciples, Andrew and Peter, the other name, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, five, and Philip and Nathaniel. Uh, and so we get to the third day now in John chapter two and the beginning of our text. It says, in the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. Now, Cana was a small town north of Nazareth. Some people believe Mary's family lived there. At this point, Jesus was not yet famous at all in, in Galilee. He had not yet started from going city to city and speaking in their synagogues. He had not yet done any miracles. And quite frankly, the disciples of John the Baptist didn't even expect any. John the Baptist was filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb. His ministry was predicted in the Old Testament. His birth was announced by angels, and he never did any miracles. And so John's disciples, he pointed them to Jesus, and so his disciples now are beginning to follow Jesus. Jesus hadn't yet done any miracles, and they probably didn't even expect him to do any. Um, and though Jesus did approve of marriage between one biological man and one biological woman, his attendance at this wedding does not mean he approved of everything that went on. Hey, listen, he also went to the Jewish temple. And that does not mean he approved of everything that went on there. He did go to this wedding, and he did approve of marriage. Now, it seems like this wedding is somehow linked with Mary because she feels some responsibility for there not being enough wine for the guests. Uh, by the way, I've never been at a wedding reception that had nothing to do with me or my family where I cared whether there was enough food. Long as there was enough for me, it's good. But for some reason, and again, she's probably linked to this in some way, she does feel some responsibility for there not being enough in verses three and four. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Mary saith unto him, they have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Now her request brings his gentle rebuke. Maybe Mary was in a little bit of a hurry to have her son known and recognized. 
I mean, after all, what parent does not want to see their children, quote, fulfill their destiny and be what the Creator designed them to be? Uh, by the way, I wouldn't recommend calling your mom a woman. But Jesus was letting her know, listen, your role in my life, it's changing. I am the Savior of the world. I'm not just your biological son. Now, Mary's never called the mother of God in the Bible. She is three times in the Bible called the mother of Jesus, once in verse 1 here, again in verse 3 here, and once in Acts chapter 1. She's called the mother of Jesus. By the way, I'm not downplaying Mary's significance as a woman of faith, but I am trying to get us to have a right view of this godly woman. Now, Mary was confident that Jesus would help, even though it didn't seem to be his preference. And so she gave the servants some good advice in verse 5. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Now, if that's not underlined in your Bible, you, you ought to underline that in your Bible. That's a great statement. That's some great advice from Mary about her son Jesus. Whatever he says, do it. That was good advice for the servants helping with the celebration. It's good advice still today. By the way, I have no doubt if Mary could speak today, and she can't, if she could speak today, she would say to every human being on this planet, don't pray to me, don't look to me in any way, Look to my son, Jesus. Now, in this case, Jesus told the servants to fill up six large empty pots and take them to the man in charge, verses 6 through 8. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews containing two or three firkins apiece. Now, firkins about nine gallons. And, and so th- this is a lot uh, I mean, somewhere between 102, um, sorry, 108 and 162 gallons. That's a lot of wine, whatever wine is in the story. It's a lot of it. Verses 6 through 8. Uh, verse 7, Jesus saith unto them, fill the water pots with water. They filled them up to the brim. He saith unto them, draw out now, bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. Uh, Now, these servants clearly took the advice of Mary literally and seriously, and they filled the water pots to the brim. They didn't just sit back and argue, well, what does it mean to be full? See, most of the time we take the commandments of Jesus kind of like their horseshoes or hand grenades, close counts. Uh, But when it comes to obedience, it's either obedience or it's not. He says, fill them up, and they filled them to the brim. By the way, that's an interesting thing. That makes them really hard to move. I'm just teaching the Bible. Now, the result of this miracle was that the water had been turned into wine, wine that was considered good at that time. In verses 9 and 10, when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and he saith unto him, Every man at the beginning does set forth good wine, and when, when men have well drunk, then they, that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. Now it was late in the celebration when hosts usually would bring out 
lower quality wine. But in this particular case, what was brought out later through the miracle of Jesus was better than what was brought out earlier, and it was called good. Now, there's an ongoing debate about whether the wine Jesus made was alcoholic or non-alcoholic. Even though the New Testament seven times very clearly says, be sober. Even though the New Testament clearly says in Ephesians, be not drunk with wine. There's an ongoing debate about whether this wine Jesus made was alcoholic or non-alcoholic. I don't personally think that's even the main point of the story. I think the main point of the story is that Jesus, as God manifest in the flesh, had power to change the form of matter. He could change water into something else. He changed it into wine. I I actually don't even think that's the second point of the parable, the story. It's not a parable, the story. I think the second main point was is that this miracle of Jesus moved his disciples to believe and trust him more. That's what verse 11 says. In this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. But because of the ongoing debate, I will give you my opinion. I do not think it was alcoholic wine. The word wine in the Bible, uh, it's the same word uh, used for alcoholic and non-alcoholic wine, grape juice, uh, you got to pay attention to the context. I have a tough time believing that Jesus, as the sinless Son of God, had any part whatsoever in something that would cause people to be drunk. Hey, listen, he is the author of the Scripture. He, through his Spirit, breathed through holy men, be sober. He, through his Spirit, breathed, be not drunk with wine. I have a tough time believing that it was alcoholic wine and like that. And think about this. In our culture, refrigeration is common. And any grape juice that is not refrigerated, it immediately begins to ferment. So at a time when there was no fermentation, the good wine was not the stuff that automatically happened Uh, it was the stuff that was fresh. And so fresh wine, grape juice, would have been very rare and much more valuable than alcoholic wine. I could give you other reasons, but that's not the point of the story, nor is it the point of my message. But I will say this. People ask the wrong question. You see, the question people ask is what's wrong with that? That's not the right question. The right question is what does Jesus prefer? See, when you love someone, you're not just trying to keep from getting them angry. When you love someone, you're looking not for the things that keep them from being angry. You're looking for the things that please them. See, the right question is what pleases Jesus most? I believe that's sobriety. Say, I disagree. Go ahead. Hey, listen, you're not going to stand before me at the judgment seat of Christ if you're a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, you're not going to stand before me at the great white throne. 
And quite frankly, at the great right throne, the least of your problems will be your alcohol. Your problem will be that your name is not in the Lamb's book of life. And when an angel grabs you and throws you in the lake of fire, your last words weren't, right, man, thank God for wine. I am completely confident Jesus prefers those who believe in him to abstain from alcohol. Paul said in Romans 14, 21, it is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything where thy, by thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. Now our thought today has nothing to do with that. So why'd you, why'd you even talk about it? Because it's in our text. Our thought for this morning goes back to verse 5 and the advice of Mary about her son when she said, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. That's a great text. See, Jesus had a lot more to say during his time on earth than what should be done with several water pots at a wedding when they needed wine. Whatever Jesus has to say about himself in eternity, we should believe it and do it. Whatever Jesus has to say about morality and about the church, we should believe it and do it. Whatever Jesus has to say about sin and how we should treat one another, we should believe it and do it. Whatever Jesus has to say about forgiveness and priorities in life, we should believe it and do it. See, it isn't just that Jesus had a good idea about what it takes to live forever. Understand, he created us. And so he not only knows what it takes to live forever, he knows what it takes to live a blessed life now. I don't just want to go to heaven when I die, though I want to go to heaven when I die. I don't just want to be caught up with the cloud in the clouds when Jesus returns, if he returns before I die. Listen, I want to live a blessed life here and now. Do you know much about what Jesus said? Do you make any effort to do what he says when you learn what he said? In June of 1876, Colonel George Armstrong Custer led a force of 700 men in the 7th Cavalry against an alliance of Native American warriors in what was then called the Montana Territory. Colonel Custer's scouts came back to him and said, we have never seen such a large assembly of combatants as those who are assembled with Crazy Horse and Chief Gall. Um, Colonel Custer did not take their recommendation. And in addition to the recommendation, he had an order from Major General Gibbon to wait for reinforcements to arrive. He didn't take anybody's advice. He didn't listen to any commandments. And most all of us here have heard of Custer's last stand in the Battle of Little Bighorn. Five of the 12 companies of the 7th Cavalry were wiped out. Colonel Custer, two of his brothers, his nephew, his brother-in-law, and over 200 soldiers were killed because Colonel Custer refused to listen to good advice he'd been given. Do you know much about what Jesus said? Will you take Mary's advice and do whatever Jesus told us to do? Or will you be like Colonel Custer and ignore good advice 
to your own destruction and the destruction of your family. So what I'd like to do this morning for just a few minutes is make some observations and applications of taking Mary's advice to do whatever Jesus had said to us. First, turn up just a page to John chapter 3. Here's number one. Jesus repeatedly told people to believe on him to live forever. Jesus repeatedly told people to believe on him to live forever. John chapter 3, verse 14. says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, that's an Old Testament story, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So if you believe in him, you're going to have eternal life. Turn up a couple pages to John chapter 6. Say, well, I believe if I do a lot of good, I'll live forever. Listen, I'm going to either believe you or Jesus. John chapter 6 and verse 40, notice what he says here. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I'll raise him up at that last day. Same promise. Believe in the Lord Jesus. You'll have everlasting life and the resurrection of the just. Notice verse 47 of the same chapter. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Jesus couldn't have been clearer. And then he gave people every reason to be able to confidently believe what he had said. Listen, heed and hear the great advice of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is more than knowing the name of Jesus. It is more than believing him to be a real person in history. To believe in him is more than knowing the facts about his birth, the facts about his miracles, the facts about his death and the cross and resurrection. Saving faith, true belief in the Lord Jesus Christ is to trust him, to receive him, to put your faith in him instead of anything else. To believe is trust. What Christ did for eternal life instead of your sprinkling as an infant. To believe in him is to trust what Christ did for eternal life instead of your own goodness or any church of any sort. To believe is to trust what Christ did for eternal life instead of your baptism, your catechism, or money you give. Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? If you've not yet done that, you're not yet saved. And when a friend or a family member lovingly tells you to believe and receive Jesus, to live forever, they're just repeating what Jesus said. Will you heed their good advice? When a preacher or a faithful witness for him stands up and tries to get you to believe and receive Jesus as Savior to live forever, they're not just making that up. They're repeating what Jesus taught us. Will you take their advice? Listen, Jesus gave every reason for people to believe that message. I mean, think about how much gall it would take to say, believe in me to live forever. I mean, listen, anybody uh, who would say that to us, we would be like, huh? But listen, the way he treated people, the way he talked, the things he talked about, the things that he did, the things that he refused to do, the miracles that he did, his suffering, his shed blood, his death on the cross, his resurrection, Everything he did caused them to step back from someone who would say, believe on me to live forever, and say, yeah, I believe that. I believe on you. Have you heeded what Jesus said to live forever? 
Have you taken Mary's good advice to do whatsoever he saith? And if you haven't, in a few moments, we'll invite you to come to Jesus, to respond to his Spirit's invitation. Please hear me when I say no one gets saved unless God first speaks to your heart. You don't get to sit there and say, well, God's speaking to my heart, um, but I'm not going to get saved today. I'll get saved tomorrow. Uh, you don't get to pick when God speaks to your heart. God might speak to your heart tomorrow. He might not. He doesn't even owe us one invitation. He promised one. He don't owe us one. Would you come if he's inviting you? But it's not just that Jesus repeatedly told people to believe on him to live forever. Secondly, turn up a few pages to John chapter 13. Here's number two. Jesus told his disciples to love one another. He told people to live on him, uh, believe on him to live forever. He told his disciples to love one another. You say, well, that's old hat. Well, then why don't we do it better? In John chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if ye have loved one to another. Listen, there should be a special kind of an affection we have for the people of God. And even more so, when it's the people of God with whom we assemble. Mary's advice is clear. Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. See, love does not mean that we always agree with them, but love does always impact what we say and what we do when we disagree. Though love does not change the truth, love greatly changes how we respond. Listen. Have you ever really thought about it? I mean, what's the church supposed to look like? Is the church supposed to look like a museum where you, you come in and, and, and everybody, everything's on display, it's all together, it's all perfectly put together? Or is the church supposed to be more like a hospital where you have people of all sorts? Is the church supposed to be the place where people want to be better than they are? Is the church supposed to be the place where everybody is already what they're supposed to be? People have the wrong idea. Listen, we are supposed to be a very dissimilar group of people, dissimilar ages, dissimilar backgrounds, dissimilar priorities and careers and gifts in life. We are united in our love for Jesus Christ and our belief in this book. And that is enough to love one another. We're supposed to have people who are spiritually immature. We're supposed to have people who don't have good character yet. We're supposed to have people who have been broken, people who are hurting. Listen, healthy churches are supposed to be like that. And we're just simply supposed to love one another as we work through all those things that so easily divide us, just like they divide our culture. I'm afraid that too many people bring their love for division and fighting into the church from our culture. My heart's desire is that Bible Baptist Church would not just simply be characterized by sound doctrine and not just characterized by passion for our God, but that we would be characterized by love for one another. 
I despise people saying dumb things like I love them but don't like them. I would say, please just shut up, but that doesn't seem nice. Please be quiet. I despise people whose sentence begin with those people. Blah, blah, blah. Listen, if you're a member here, you're part of those people. Say, Brother Wally, what a problem you're addressing. I'm not addressing anything. I'm just saying, hey, we, this is the way we're supposed to be. If I have a problem to address, I'll bring it up. See, I get it. Not everybody's going to be your best friend. But there ought not be anybody here you don't speak to on purpose. You ever just repent of that kind of stuff? Well, they're dead to me. I hope you're joking. Listen, none of us are as different from each other as everyone was different from Jesus. He was sinless, they were sinners. He perfectly balanced grace and truth. None of them come anywhere close. And yet he loved them to the end. Do you ever pray for the people with whom you disagree? Do you ever pray that God would help you love people like he does? See, the fact of the matter is, is you don't pray that because you don't really want to. It ain't really that hard of a prayer. You know, if you're saved, God's spirit lives in you. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Need to cough up a lung. If you're saved, God's spirit lives in you, and the first part of his fruit is love. And so what that means, if you don't love somebody here, it means you're not yielded to the spirit. It has nothing to do with them. Listen, if you only love those who are like you, that's not even distinctly Christian love. I mean, go ahead. Uh, we won't turn there because of time. We could go to Matthew chapter 5 and find out that Jesus says that publicans, agape publicans. Listen, because we're made in the image of a creator who is love, unsaved people can have genuine love for other people who are like them. It's not distinctly Christian love until it becomes more like God's love, which is love for people who are not like us, love for people who wrong us, love for people to whom we're not close. Oh, Jesus said love one another. That's old hat. Listen, it shouldn't be old hat. I wonder what kind of difference it would make in our homes if we really tried to heed what Jesus said when he told us to love one another. I wonder what kind of difference it would make in our ministry, in our church, in our Sunday school class, in every aspect of the work of God here if we really tried to love one another like Jesus told us to do so. Listen, if you are a gossip, if you are a backstabber, if you are a regular critic, you can just mark it down. You do not love like you're supposed to. Love does not Backstab. Gossip. Stop it. Well, I don't, I don't drink wine and I don't chew tobacco. 
And I don't even hang out with them that do. Good for you. How about you just get some love, kindness in your mouth? You're a true believer in Jesus. Then you have the Holy Spirit that helps you with this. Are you heeding Mary's advice to do whatever Jesus told us to do? And I've got lots more, but I'm only going to do one more thing. Go to Matthew 15. Matthew, uh, Matthew 7, I'm sorry. See, how is it you run out of time? I don't know. So you've done this thousands of times. Why don't you just prepare the right amount? Because sometimes I leave my notes. Almost always, if I say something that's a little outrageous, it's not in my notes. That's why I have a lot of notes, because I try to not do that. I, listen, I don't want to be a distraction to what the Lord wants to do. And anybody here, if you've preached or taught much at all, you would sometimes walk away and say, you know what, I was a distraction when I said that. I don't want to be that way. So I'm just going to give you one more piece of advice Jesus had to say. Here's our last thing. Jesus told his disciples to beware of false prophets. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. The men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles. Even so every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast in the fire. Here, how can I recognize false prophets? Here it is. Wherefore, by their fruits, verse 20, ye shall know them. I used to think that fruits was only behavior and attitude. And that is part of fruit. But then I got thinking about it. And you know, there are a lot of people who follow a false Jesus whose behavior is good. Listen, uh, the Mormon people, by and large, are good, clean, living, moral people, but the Jesus they follow is not equal with God the Father. That's another Jesus. By and large, those who call themselves Jehovah's Witnesses live clean, moral, good lives, but the Jesus they follow is not equal with God the Father they follow another Jesus. And so fruits is not just behavior. Do you know what it also is? It's doctrine. People's fruit is how they behave. People's fruit is their attitude. And people's fruit is their doctrine. And that's how you and I recognize false prophets. God chose you and I for this day. I don't know that there's ever been a day when there was more bad information out there than, than today. There were false prophets in the first century. There were false teachers. There were false letters claiming to be from Paul. All that has gone on from the very beginning. But today, because of the internet and everything else, uh, man, it's just everywhere. I just want to simply say this to you. Beware. The safest thing you can do is find someone who's more seasoned than you, whose attitude, whose doctrine, whose life you know. Trust them more than somebody you don't know. You know, there's a lot of single people in their 30s and 40s sitting in their parents' basement in their pajamas eating Cheerios who've never been married writing 
advice on how to be married on the internet. There are a lot of women whose babies are still in diapers and their first grader is still carrying their blankie to school telling people how to be moms. Please. Please. Beware. There are some good, godly, spiritually minded people. Don't get your information from a garbage can when you can get it someplace good. If you quietly stand.